And Lord willing, we will be finishing up the last few verses in the chapter. You may remember after last week, we, I, I say we, I include you in what I did, but I cut the lesson a bit short last week, and we got down through verse 29 of chapter 15, but today the plan is to finish up the remaining few verses that uh, we have here. So in those previous verses in Romans 15, we've been talking about Paul's future plans, his desire to come and visit this church at Rome as he goes as he has plans to go into Spain. He has fully preached the gospel in the current region through Asia and into Greece, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, which is on that far edge of Greece. And now looking to retire, no, or not, sorry, not looking to retire or let moss grow under his feet, Paul is looking for other opportunities to Spain to go further west, and he has plans to go on and preach the gospel there. So he reveals part of his plan for that here, and on his way to go into Spain, he hopes to stop by and visit Rome. Not as a vacation, although he does, we'll see that he does plan to um, see some refreshing rest there, but he hopes to be able to count on them for assistance, possibly asking to use them as a home base on his missionary journeys as he gets farther into Europe. But before he does this, he mentions that there is another pressing duty that he has on his plate, that of bringing an offering from the Gentile churches in those regions to the impoverished saints that live in Jerusalem. The Gentiles have been more than willing to give of their material blessings to their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. He said in verse 26 that they were pleased to make this contribution, to share in fellowship with their brethren. But not only that, they also saw it as an obligation to these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And as the chosen nation of God, Israel, through whom came all the promises, the covenants, the worship, and even the Messiah himself, these Gentile believers saw themselves as, as debtors, having a debt to the Jews, having been blessed through the plan and covenants that God had established with Israel, they saw themselves as debtor to the Jews. Therefore, they were willing to share of their material possessions for these believers in need. And this gift was an important enough ministry that Paul was taking this on personally, delivering it to Jerusalem before he proceeded on to Rome and then go on to Spain. Now, we looked at all this last time, verses 20 through, through 29. We noted that this all involved fellowship, koinonia, sharing in common. We had Paul who was coming to Rome to not only minister to them, but with a desire to be helped by them as well. Believers helping believers is what we see in this section here. We had the Gentile churches contributing or fellowshipping with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, believers willingly contributing or contributing to one another in a material way. But we stopped at verse 29, and we didn't get to verses 30 through 33 of Romans 15. And these final four verses that we have here, we see Paul really asking for more fellowship with these believers, with this church at Rome. Another type of contribution from these fellow believers in Rome is he carries out his mission to deliver this offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And in these verses that close out the chapter, Paul is asking for the assistance of the Roman believers through prayer. Here we get more insight into not only the life of Paul, but also his attitude and the way that he saw his ministry. Now you understand the picture. When you think about Paul, Here's the Apostle Paul. He's a man that Jesus Christ appeared to personally and appointed to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. He was a man who'd received a direct revelation from God, who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote more books in the New Testament than anyone else did. He was a man used by God to perform signs and wonders and miracles through his uh, office of being an apostle, and to show evidence of the validity of the gospel message that he brought to those who had never heard of Jesus Christ. He was a man that we see throughout the New Testament used in mighty ways by God. But now, here in Romans chapter 15, 
We see Paul as a man who is dependent upon the prayers of other believers. I think that aspect of Paul's ministry is sometimes lost on us, or it gets, we tend to forget it, or we tend to overlook these things that Paul asks for, this time that he asks for prayer. Whenever Paul went, wherever he went, he had companions. He had people with him. I don't know if you're like me, but every time when I think about Paul, I think about him as being this, this guy who's out there just going from church to church by himself, on the road by himself. But he always had companions. He always had believers by his side. And in his letters that he writes to other churches, he always had time to send greetings to those whom he had deep care and compassion for. And we'll see that aspect of that letter when we get into chapter 16. But this kind of glimpse into the aspect of Paul's life and ministry is really why I like to spend time on these introductions and these conclusions that we have in these letters, because it gives us a glimpse of how he views himself and his own ministry. We understand that Christian life is not about doing it by yourself. It's not about being a lone wolf. We've seen before the model of the body of Christ is many different parts all being joined together, functioning with one purpose, building one another up, edifying the entire body. Yes, we are all saved individually. We all have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in our salvation, but we are saved into the body of Christ to have fellowship with one another. It's believers depending upon other believers. And that's all part of the fellowship that we have together as believers, investing in, participating in the lives of other believers. Look with me over to the book of 1 John for a minute, the first chapter of 1 John. I told you last time that 1 John is the next book that we're going to study together, so let me let this serve as foreshadowing for what we'll see in the coming months. Kind of whet your appetite for 1 John, maybe. Or turn you off to it. I don't know. We'll depend on how it goes here. But in chapter 1 of 1 John, John's introduction is much shorter and to the point than Paul's in this letter here. He starts off with a very brief statement on how he's sharing with them truth of what he has seen and heard himself, the truth of the gospel. John being an eyewitness of Christ's ministry on earth, right? He was one of the apostles. But look at what he says in verse 3. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And you see there again, that's our word for fellowship that we've been talking about, koinonia. But you note the completeness of the fellowship that he mentions here. John is writing to them that they may have fellowship with him. And ultimately, our fellowship is rooted where? With God. Ultimately, with the Father and with the Son, there's fellowship that we have with God. So we not only share in common with one another, but we share in common with God himself. We are all, we are all placed into the body of Christ, the family of God. Look down at verse 6. He continues with this same theme where he says down here, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First John is a letter that is all about evidence. The evidence of our salvation. Things that we show in our lives that, that prove, that show that we are saved. One of those things he mentions here, the fellowship that we have with one another. If we say that we belong to God, we say, yes, I'm a follower of God and I have fellowship with him, but we walk in sin, we lie, he says. If we walk in the light, that is evidence of the fellowship that we have with one another. If I'm truly walking in righteousness as I should be, that's evidence that I truly have fellowship in the church. And this is true salvation that we're talking about. The true salvation involves the fellowship that we have with one another. Now, one of the most effective ways that we can fellowship with one another, strengthen one another, build one another up, is by praying for each other. Being involved in each other's lives through prayer. 
an act that not only involves our fellowship together, but it involves our fellowship with God as well. We pray to God on behalf of one another. That is a fellowship that is only possible through our relationship with Jesus Christ as believers. Believers sometimes think that they don't need the involvement of anyone else in their lives. They can go it alone or that the church involvement isn't really necessary. You have believers out there that think, you know what, I want to spend as little time as possible with other believers. But they're sadly mistaken in that. Again, Paul is our example in this. If anyone had the faith to be a lone Christian, doing it all by himself, it would have been Paul. However, it was a common theme for Paul to ask for prayer from those to whom he was writing. We're going to take a look at some passages where we see Paul's reliance on other believers through prayer. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I do know that we're in Romans, but we've only got four verses left, so taking a little liberty here with some other passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul realizes that he does not serve just by trusting in himself or by trusting in himself. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, look down at verse 8. As he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even in life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. As we become more and more mature and we gain greater knowledge of the Word, there is a tendency at times to think that we now have this great strength or ability within ourselves. When in reality, we should be acknowledging that our strength is found in the Lord. And that's the conclusion that Paul comes to here. And he goes on then in verse 11, confident that he will be delivered from death. He says, I'm sorry, in verse 10, God who delivered us, from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So you see his reliance on God here for deliverance. But now look at verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Paul has confidence in being delivered, understanding the sovereignty of God, and that he is the one who will deliver him, and yet he also understands the effectiveness of the prayers of those in Corinth. The importance of the prayers of believers within God's sovereign plan. Believers sharing the burdens of other believers in prayer. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll just go through a few of Paul's letters here. Ephesians chapter 6. Look down at verse 18 of Ephesians 6. Here's what he instructs the believers in Ephesus to do. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be on the alert. Pray with perseverance for all the saints, Paul says. We are to pray for one another. In verse 19, he includes himself in this request by saying, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. As believers are praying for other believers, Paul asks for prayer for himself as well. Pray on my behalf. Paul understood the power and the importance of prayer in the believer's life. But what does he ask them to pray for? Boldness in speaking to others about the gospel of Christ. Ephesians is one of Paul's prison letters. And in writing this letter, notice that he's not asking for prayer here to get out of prison. I mean, he does ask for deliverance at different times. But here, that's not even his primary focus. He's not even asking for deliverance from death here. Here he is asking for boldness in speaking the gospel, even in his present situation. Speaking the gospel is what got him into prison in the first place. And he says, pray for me that I can be even more bold in speaking the gospel. I want to speak it louder to more people with more passion and zeal than he's already preached it. 
you were in prison, if I was in prison, get me out of here. Pray that I get out of here. That would be my focus. But Paul wants prayer that he will have opportunity to share the gospel. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. We'll try to get through these quickly. I know, too late. But Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. We see Paul prays for the Philippians. He says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. So he's praying for them, but then look down at verse 19. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This is another one of Paul's prison letters. And here we see Paul who is assured of his deliverance through their prayers. And so, yes, there are believers praying for Paul's deliverance, and he's aware of that. But what's his main concern here, once again? That Christ will be exalted in his body. Christ will be made greater through Paul. Whether he lives or dies, Paul's prayer is that Christ will be glorified. Once again, Paul saw his ministry as being dependent upon the prayers of others. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Pray... Praying at all time, praying at the same time for us as well. Once again, believers encouraged to devote themselves to prayer and to pray for Paul and his companions. But what should they pray for? It goes on in the verse that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Once again, Paul in prison, but he asks for prayers to be able to speak the word accurately, to proclaim the gospel boldly. The gospel that he was put in prison for, he wants to continue to, to, to proclaim it. We look at Paul, a man like Paul, and think, how could he be so bold? How could he function in his ministry with the perseverance and the strength that he had? Well, look at what he asked people to pray for him. He had the prayers of multiple churches, of believers throughout this entire region, Christians coming before the throne of grace and petitioning God to give Paul boldness, strength to carry on his ministry. Now all the strength that Paul had first and foremost came from God, and we can't take anything away from that, but once again, even within the sovereign workings of God, he uses the loving actions of believers toward one another to bring about his will. Prayer is a vital part of that. Two more passages, and we'll be done. Then we'll get into Romans. 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul simply says, Brethren, pray for us. Short and sweet, no muss, no fuss, just pray for us. It's almost as if at the end of that letter, Paul just has to get this in. He just has to say, if nothing else, if you don't do anything else for us, brethren, pray for us. But then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he gives a little more there. He says in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, and for not all have faith. Once again, his main thing to pray for, his ministry, the glory of God, along with deliverance from enemies. Notice in all these instances, the main point in Paul's request for prayer is that God is glorified. Boldness for the gospel, open doors, the exalting of Christ. Pray for my ministry, my responsibilities and faithfulness before the Lord. We all have areas that require prayer. We all need prayer in different areas. Needs for both ourselves and for those that we know and love. And as fellow believers, we all have a responsibility to be lifting up those requests that each of us have, faithfully showing love to one another in that way. 
But I think there are many times where we miss important opportunities to pray for each other as well as when we ask for prayer. I may ask for prayer through a difficult and stressful time in my life, but maybe I should be asking you to pray that I will overcome the difficult times so that I can be a witness in that. The testimony, to show unbelievers around me that there is a difference in my life that I can attribute to my faith in Christ. What is the most significant thing that I can ask you to pray for me? That I will have an effective ministry for Jesus Christ. That I will make a difference here on earth for him. Sharing the gospel. Proclaiming his name to those around me. Maybe I come down with a physical affliction. A life-threatening disease. And if that happens, yes, please pray for me in that. But also pray that I can use that as an opportunity to be bold for the gospel that others would see the love that this body has for me during that time and that it might bring unbelieving friends, families, doctors, nurses into a position where the gospel can be clearly preached and shared with them. As believers in Jesus Christ, our main focus is and always should be the proclaiming of the gospel. Whether, Whether things are going well or badly, whether I am healthy or sick, no matter what, that is my purpose for being here. My purpose in this life, that was Paul's attitude as he sat in jail, a prisoner of Rome, waiting to see whether or not he was going to be put to death. His main concern was still, how do I share the gospel in my present situation? So as we come to verse 30 in Romans 15, I told you we'd get there. We're coming to Romans 15. We're going to see Paul ask the Romans for prayer in his ministry once again as he moves from talking about his desire to come visit them and he reveals his desire for assistance from the Romans even now. And he asks them to go to battle with him in prayer. He will encourage them to pray for him and tell them specifically what to pray for and he will tell them of his assurance of the outcome. So he says in verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So he urges them. Urging is a word that means to have a strong desire or exhortation for, to implore someone to have action. Paul is spurring them on to action here as as fellow believers, as brethren. So what is he urging them to do? To pray. Paul is asking for the believers in Rome to pray for him and for his ministry and the tasks that he has to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I implore you to pray for me. As a member of the body of Christ, as fellow believers, it's their prayers that Paul covets, that he desires. He understands that he needs help from the Romans, and this is a very real way in which he can get that. Because those are the only, because from believers, those are the only prayers that are effective. That God responds to as coming from his own children. It's the prayers of the brethren, of believers. And that's important to note, because again, it's a part of that fellowship that we have only as believers, with one another and with our Lord. When I am in need of prayer, I come to my fellow believers. I should let you know what I need you to pray for. Pray for. Because as believers, we are the only ones who can come before the Almighty God with our prayers and petitions. Into His presence, into the throne room of grace, we come to Him with our praises and our, and our requests. It is believers who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who have been purified and made acceptable to come before the throne of God. As those who are in Jesus Christ, He is our advocate before the Father. Now, When we talk about prayers and we talk about asking people to pray for us, what about unbelievers? Should we also covet the prayers of unbelievers? Well, we might ask the question, can unbelievers pray? Well, in the sense that they can speak words directed towards God, yes. Are their prayers heard? Well, in the sense that God hears and knows everything, yes. But... They are unable to come into the presence of God. Their prayers are not honoring to Him. In other words, God doesn't listen to the prayers of unbelievers. Isaiah chapter 1, 
we read there that God tells the disobedient nation of Israel that He will hide His eyes from them. He will not listen to their prayers. That sounds harsh. God says He won't listen to prayers. Why would He not listen to prayers? Because they are unclean. Because they are disobedient to Him. In this day, it's true of all those who have not been washed by the blood of Christ. They have not put their faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they have no access before the Father. In John chapter 14, Jesus says what? No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? Without faith in Jesus Christ, there is no access to the Father. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we read that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. You go through Jesus Christ to get to God. Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns his ear from listening to the law, God's word, even his prayer is an abomination. Those who are unbelievers don't obey God and his word, the prayers of the lost, are an abomination to him. Why would that be? Why would they be an abomination? Because these are people that claim that they want to come to God. They want things from him, but they don't want to come to God God's way. There is no access to God apart from God's way. They're basically coming to God and saying, I want things from you, but I'm not willing to do it the way that you want. I'm not willing to do it in obedience to you. I just want help. Therefore, it's the prayers of the saints that Paul is seeking after here. And those are the prayers that we should be seeking after. He asks for their prayers on the basis of two things. The first thing being in light of the authority of Jesus Christ. By our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord together as the body of Christ. In light of our mutual relationship with Him, by His authority, that is the basis for our praying for one another. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a believer in Jesus Christ as two individuals who are both under the Lordship of Christ. We have a responsibility before God to be praying for one another. Paul reminds them of this responsibility, this obligation that they have to pray for him. The second basis he has here is on the basis of the love that is produced in the life of the believer by the love of of the Spirit. This is the love that we have towards one another as believers. We've talked about this before. You see it throughout the New Testament. Galatians 5.22, we looked at that uh, verse a few weeks back when we were talking about the goodness that is found in the Roman church, up back up in verse 14. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Among other things, love is that primary fruit of the Spirit. As those who are redeemed or indwelt by the Holy Spirit, having love is produced in our hearts. We ought to pray for one another as an outpouring of that love for one another. This isn't difficult to understand. Who do we feel the most burden to pray for? When something happens to someone in our family, right? My wife, my kids, my grandkids, my, you know, my parents. Right? When that happens, there's no question. I'm down on my knees in prayer for them. It's the people I love. Well, what did we see back in Romans chapter 12? We saw a lot there. But in verses 9 and 10, Paul said there, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We have a sacrificial love towards one another that is to be genuine. That's that love in verse 9. That's the love that he was talking about back in, in chapter 15. But we are also to have love for one another as a family type of love. If you were, as if you were my brother or my sister or my son or my daughter. In other words, as I manifest self-sacrificing love in my life, one of the ways I do it is in loving you as if you're part of my own family. That's the way believers act and behave towards one another. I give preference to you. I esteem you higher than I do myself. One of the most effective ways that I can do that is by coming before the throne of God and presenting you before Him in my prayers. 
you have a need in your life, I should feel the necessity on the basis of our relationship with Christ and the love of the Spirit to lift you up before God. Now, more specifically, Paul isn't just asking for a casual mention here. Well, if you think about it, pray for me, right? I mean, sometimes isn't that kind of our attitude? Well, maybe I'll ask somebody to pray for me. If you think about it, just give, me, give me a shout out. Well, look at what he says here. He urges them to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. To strive together. This is a phrase that indicates that Paul isn't merely talking about an occasional mention. He's asking for the Roman believers to battle together with him in prayer, to fight with him. This comes from the base word, Greek word, agonizomai, a word that we get our word agonize from. Agonize with me in your prayers. It's a word used of battles, a word used of athletic events. Paul uses this word when trying to encourage Timothy to keep up the battle. He says in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight with of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight, agonize, strive the good fight. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is speaking of his own walk, in 4.7 he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. At the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. When he knows that he's about to die, he could say that he agonized. He battled in his life, in his service to God. Now to the Romans, he's asking them to fight with him in prayer. So what does this tell us? Oftentimes, I think, for believers, prayer doesn't come as easy as it should, much like spending time in the Word at times. I don't have the time. I'm way too busy. I have a hard time concentrating. I'm too tired. I fall asleep when I pray. These things, any of these things sound familiar to anyone? Sometimes we treat prayer like it's optional, like when everything else is lined up in our day, we just might have a spare minute or two to come before the throne of God. Oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, I can squeeze that in here. That's not the picture that Paul's presenting here. Strive together in your prayers. Go to battle in your prayer life. Too tired? Take a cold shower. Stand up. Walk around and pray. I remember hearing somebody say one time that they, they stood up when they prayed because if they fell asleep, they wouldn't sleep for very long only about the time it took them to get to the floor, right? You'll stay awake if you do that. Need not enough time for prayer? Get up an hour earlier. Turn the TV off an hour earlier. Can't concentrate? Make a list. Pray out loud. Do whatever it takes to make prayer a priority. We're preparing for battle. The Christian life is a battle against this world. Prayer is a vital part of that. We won't turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, Paul talks about the spiritual battle that we have, right? He talks about the believer's armor, the armor of God, and our fight against the forces of this world. He describes the way that we prepare for battle against the world forces, right? We put on the helmet, the breastplate, the shield, the sword, girding our loins, put on the, um, the, the shoes, shodding our feet. Right? It's head to toe, being prepared for battle. And we're all very familiar with that section of Ephesians chapter 6. But then what does he say? It's the verse that we read earlier in Ephesians 6.18. After you're prepared for battle, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We pray at all times for all the saints. We prepare ourselves for battle. Then we get down on our knees and we bring it all before the Lord. Prayer is a part of the spiritual battle. Prayer is spiritual battle. Paul gives specific things on what he wants them to pray for in verse 31. Two things here that will result in a third thing that he says when we get to verse 32. 
Verse 31, he says, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So the first thing he mentions, Paul prays for his own personal safety, his own deliverance, not because he's afraid for his own personal comfort, but because he has a mission that needs to be accomplished. Paul was going to Jerusalem. Paul was going into an area that would prove to be dangerous for him to go to. Paul wasn't loved in Jerusalem. He had a lot of enemies there. So here he wants prayer from the Romans that he would be delivered from those who are disobedient. Now, who are the disobedient? What does he mean by that? Well, these are the unbelievers. Most specifically, in this case, in that area, he's talking about unbelieving Jews. He's talking about the Jews in that area that have not accepted and trusted in Christ. They are the ones who are disobedient to God, disobedient to the gospel. We saw this earlier in Romans, back in chapter 10. In verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And then in the next chapter, chapter 11, he used it of both Jews and Gentiles, and down in verse 30, he said, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, but these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Anyone who has never accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ is acting in disobedience to God. They are disobedient. Therefore, when Paul talks about the disobedient in Judea, he's referring to those Jews who haven't accepted the gospel. Those are the ones that he knows that he's in danger from. So by going to Jerusalem with this gift, with this offering that he's collected, Paul was going straight into the lion's den, so to speak. The Jews in Judea were opposed to Paul because of the gospel message. If you remember, Paul was one of them originally. He was like chief among them originally. He was the one out persecuting the church. And then he became a traitor in their eyes, switched to the other side. And this is really where his statements from back in chapter 11 were seen in full force. He told the Romans in verse 28 of chapter 11, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. The majority of the Jewish nation was disobedient to the gospel. Now we see throughout the book of Acts, to put it mildly, the Jews were not a big fan of Paul. They weren't on his, he wasn't on their good side. In chapter 9, Hellenistic Jews attempted to kill him. In chapter 13, in Pisidian Antioch, a persecution is instigated against Paul by the Jews. Chapter 14, at Lystra, they stone him and leave him for dead. In chapter 17, at Thessalonica, Paul had to be sent away secretly. In chapter 18, in Corinth, he's brought before Gallio, the proconsul, by the Jews. In chapter 19, at Ephesus, the Jews become hardened and disobedient, it says. In chapter 20, in Greece, a plot arises against him by the Jews. Now, it's in Acts chapters 20 and 21 that we read of the account of Paul's return to Jerusalem. After all that's happened to him with the Jews, he now is going back to Jerusalem. Turn with me over to the book of Acts. And you might want to keep a marker here because we'll be back here a couple times. And we're not going to look at all of this here, but we'll, I'll try to give you an idea of what Paul's situation was. Because this fits in very well with what, what we're talking about here. In fact, like I said, we're not going to read it all, but I would encourage you maybe if you have a free hour or so this afternoon, read chapters 19 really through the end of Acts and you'll kind of see the flow of all this that we're talking about. But we'll see what he's dealing with on this trip. Now, in Acts 19, on his third missionary journey, we see, we see here in verse 21, Paul's plans to go to Rome. He says in Acts 19:21, For after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So here starts his journey to Jerusalem, which is what he's in the middle of here um, in the book of Romans. Remember, it was the churches in Macedonia and Achaia that were pleased to send this contribution. So we see this all involved here. He decides he's going to go to Jerusalem. After he goes through Macedonia and Achaia, he comes back. 
he goes down to Jerusalem, and then he plans to go to Rome. So after he goes through those regions, he makes it way back to Jerusalem. But on his way, he goes past Ephesus. And he sends for the Ephesian elders to come to him. And he tells them, look over in chapter 20, look down at verse 22. He's talking to the Ephesian elders here on his way to Jerusalem. And he says, now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He knows that bonds and afflictions wait him in Jerusalem. He was asking for deliverance from the disobedient in Judea. But like I said, that's not deliverance so that he would have personal comfort. It's deliverance so that he can finish his mission, his ministry. Even his own companions tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, that's a bad idea. This is what awaits you there. But Paul's determination is to finish the course, regardless of the consequences of his own life. The important thing is that Paul carries out his ministry before God. And we won't read it all, but when you get to Acts 21, starting in verse 27, Jews from Asia, from regions in which he has shared the gospel, they recognize him, right? He went through all through Asia, sharing the gospel. And Jews that were there recognize him, and they stir up the crowds against him. And Paul is seized by the multitude in Jerusalem. So that's what Paul was really facing, and he knew the danger before him, and yet he was determined to go to Jerusalem anyway. So here in Romans 15, it was his prayer that his Jewish opponents would not hinder him from completing this mission. So back in Romans 15, like I said, keep a finger in Acts, we'll be back there again. That was one of his concerns, but it wasn't his only concern. There was a second thing that he wanted them to pray for, that his offering from the Gentile churches would be accepted by those in Jerusalem. He says that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now think about this. What a, what a terrible thing really to have to worry about. Whether or not a gracious gift given in love and with a willing heart out of an ordeal and poverty of the ones giving it and brought to them by someone who was willing to take a risk with his own life to get it to them, to be worried about whether or not this gift will be acceptable to the ones to whom it's given. Will the Jews, with the tensions that they have with the Gentiles, will they be gracious enough to accept this gift, even in the face of the great need that they have? You know, this sounds like the way it is sometimes with people today, right? People get funny when it comes to gifts, when it comes to somebody trying to help them out with something. People even in churches have a need, but they won't accept help from someone who graciously offers it, especially when it comes to things like finances. We get really funny when it comes to finances. Out of love and concern for a fellow believer, a person reaches deep into what they have to help provide for them that shared fellowship, that koinonia, and too often the response is, I can't take that, I won't accept charity. Often it's because of pride. I can't admit that I need help. I can't admit that I need assistance, and I'm more comfortable holding on to my pride while going through this financial hardship than I am graciously, than I am graciously accepting the loving gift of a fellow believer. So we go through that at times. Or it's not maybe a matter of pride, but it might be a matter of just arrogance, which might be what was going on here, because here were the Jews saying, potentially saying, we are Jews, we're not going to take anything from Gentiles, because that was a very real attitude between Jews and Gentiles back then. We can't take gifts from Gentiles. That was a real concern. That was a real concern for Paul to have here, which again is something that in the church should not be a concern at all. When we are all members of the body of Christ, sharing once again in that fellowship with one another, that should have no place in the church. So Paul is asking them to pray that these impoverished believers in Jerusalem will accept this gift from their Gentile brethren. 
Now turn over to Acts with me again, back to chapter 21. Because we not only get to see Paul's request here, but we get to see some of the results of it as well. If you go to Acts chapter 21, we've seen some of the bad, now that there's, there's good that happens in Jerusalem as well. Down in chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's able to get there, and he's received gladly. There was a great response. And they were able to relate their ministry among the Gentiles to the believers in Jerusalem, which would be Jewish believers there. So there were answered prayers concerning the way that they were received when they got to Jerusalem. So again, back in Romans 15, in verse 32, if these prayers were successful, then we see the end result. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So having accomplished this task that he's on, Paul will be on his way to Rome anticipating a joyful and restful trip. But the key phrase in this is by the will of God. Because Paul does accomplish his task. He does make it to the saints in Jerusalem. And he does come to Rome, and he does see the saints there in Jerusalem, or in Rome. And he does have downtime. And he has time for rest when he's in Rome. But it's not quite as he expected. We mentioned last time that there's really no biblical indication that he ever made it to Spain to have ministry in Spain. And beginning with those events in Acts chapter 21, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. And from the end of chapter 21 through chapter 26, he's in custody in Jerusalem. And he spends two years in custody. And then in beginning in Acts chapter 27, he's actually sent to Rome as a prisoner. And then we read in Acts chapter 28, if you're still back there, you can go back there, but in Acts chapter 28, verse 14, it says, There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So finally, after all this that happens to him, after going to Jerusalem, he, fake, he makes it to Rome, although it's a bit different than what he originally planned. There was joy on the part of Paul when he finally met the brethren. These were believers, would have been believers from the Roman church, finally greeted by the believers in Rome. And he most likely got quite a bit of rest while he was a prisoner. Uh, down in verse 30 of Acts 28, it says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. What did he do while he was a prisoner? He taught all those he could about Jesus Christ with openness, unhindered. So he does make it there. He makes it to Rome by the will of God. But we will see, or, but we see that God's will wasn't exactly lined up with Paul's original plans. And that's something that we always need to keep in mind with our prayers and the things that we pray for. Because we make our plans and we pray that our plans would work out, but we need to also remember and be open to the fact that, that God might work them out wildly different than the way that we think they ought to be worked out. It may not be anything like what we had planned. It may not come about the way that we think that it will, but we submit ourselves to the will of God and we rejoice in the outcome with thankfulness of how he answers prayers. Paul was able to still fulfill his ministry just in Rome and as a prisoner, but people still came to him and he was still able to preach the gospel. Back in Romans, he ends this section in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. As believers in Jesus Christ, the God of peace is with us at all times. God is the source of peace. Peace, again, 
fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. There is no area in our life that needs to be in turmoil. Even as Paul is contemplating this ministry and the, the uncertainty of going back to Jerusalem, and as it, certainly as he finds out that there are bonds and afflictions that wait him in Jerusalem, he's still telling these Romans, the God of peace is with you all. There's no area of our life that needs to be in turmoil because he is the source of peace in our life. And we, have, we are to have that same peace together because God has made that possible for all who belong to him. As believers in Christ, we are to be invested in each other's lives. We are to be characterized by having love towards one another. We show love in our gifts and in our service towards one another as we come here together Sunday mornings, as we meet throughout the week. We are to be providing for each other's needs. We are to be serving one another. We are to be edifying and building up and encouraging one another. We show love by our prayers, disciplining ourselves to have a prayer life that involves our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we respond when we get prayer requests from people? Do we have them written down? Do we truly remember them? When people say, oh, pray for me in this. Oh, I will. But do we? I think we're probably all guilty of telling someone, yes, I'll pray for you. And then the next day, do we even remember that we said that? If someone were to come up to us and say, oh, I want to thank you for praying for this for me. Would we stop and think, I wonder what that request was. Or would we know for sure what it was that we were supposed to be praying for them for? We're to be striving in battle in prayer, to have a prayer life that is pleasing to God. Is that the characteristic of our prayer life? What's our goal? What's our purpose? To accomplish the ministry that God has given us, to share his gospel, to build up his church, to do all that we need to do for his glory, not just for ourselves, but to edify and encourage this entire body, to make sure this body runs smoothly and efficiently in every area. As we fellowship with one another in all things, we, share, we show our fellowship by our prayers for each other, by our ministry towards one another, our service to one another, providing even for one another, because we function together as the body of Christ, all for the glory of God. Let's close in a word of prayer.